listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Cross-cultural, lyrical, dramatic. Indian-American composer Asa Srinivasan draws from her Western musical training and her Indian heritage to create her compositional language. Her works have been presented at various venues such as the National Flute Convention, Thailand International Composers Festival, International Computer Music Conference, to name a few, and her works have been released on CD by Ablaze Records, Mark Records, Beauport Classical, and Seamus CD Series. Ms. Srinivasan is currently an Associate Professor of Music at Lawrence University, and recently she joined the board of the American Composers Forum. You can listen to more of her works and purchase scores at twocomposers.org. Cool. Well, Asha, thanks for doing this. Great. Thank you. It's, it's great to have you on. I want to start with uh, your piece. Diver- <laughs> so this is this is the one that's hard for me for whatever reason. Yeah. Anyway, I want to start with the piece Dvarag. And uh, this is a piece for flute and and cello. And in the notes you wrote about it, you said that this the melodic um the melodic lines and the melodic motion in this was kind of inspired by inspired by uh carnotic vocal exercises that you learned as a child right yeah mm-hmm. in india so what are carnotic vocal exercise exercises um you know they're kind of akin to solfege exercises that we have here um mm-hmm. You know, like do re mi re mi fa mi fa so that kind of solfege exercise. It's it's akin to that in that it really helps you, um, you know, it helps your vocal cords, it helps your vocal training, uh, and it also helps you uh, with the particular raga that you start with. So we don't start mm-hmm. with major scale. We have a particular raga called Maya Malava Gola. It's a pretty long name, uh, <laughs> and th- these are exercises in. Uh, you know, using that particular raga. So it really increases your facility with that raga and kind of gets you into the, um, you know, into the practice, essentially. How many how many different ragas are there? Oh, thousands. Um, thousands, okay. Yeah, because, you know, it's... If you think about all the different kinds of pentatonic combinations and hexatonic mm-hmm. combinations, like, you know, all of the different... Um, and then there's some, there are a lot of ragas that are actually maybe even the same pitches, but the way you sing it is different. So a raga, mm-hmm. that's why, that's why people say raga is not exactly a scale or a mode. It's more complex than that because mm-hmm. it's sort of in the nuances and um, in the inflections, what it means to have a, you know, what it means to be in one particular raga. So mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, yeah, I think people say it's, it's pretty, it's in the thousands. <laughs> wow. I mean, you're saying the inflections. Does that also? Are there particular tendencies with with each Ex- raga? Like yeah, exactly. So um, there's something called sancharis, which are phrases that are very. You know how we talk about key defining chords or key defining intervals mm-hmm. in Western music? It's like there are sort of like raga defining gestures or phrases um, that that the pieces are really built around and all the musicians are very, very well versed with those phrases and audiences are too, actually. So they can hear, Mm. it's actually kind of a fun uh, task for the audience to figure out the raga that someone is singing and they can do that using those very sort of signature phrases. Okay. Um, Does, 
Does this piece, the the formal aspect of, of your piece, does it have a connection to those uh, carnotic exercises or, or is that just merely kind of a metric and rhythmic connection that you're making um, it's really It's a motivic connection. Motivic. Or you could okay. think of it like an emotivic, thematic, you know, kind of in that camp. Um, so the cello starts with what would be this this exercise and mm-hmm. if you were to follow the cello along you'll see that they have a pattern on do and what would be re and you know and so on sort of first scale degree second scale degree and so on um mm-hmm. and after that presentation the flute also has a presentation of it then it becomes motivic and i kind of draw from the melodic and rhythmic aspects the formal design is um, much more of a sort of typical western conception okay. i was in this case, I, I I always start my pieces soft, and so I wanted to try something different. So I started mm-hmm. started it with a lot of energy, and, and um, I like a lot of variety in my music, and so it seemed obvious that I would need some kind of slow, you know, right. <laughs> middle, and then pick pick it back up towards the end. So it was interesting when I was listening because I I just kind of clicked play, and then I was looking at your website to you know kind of read read more about the piece, but in the first. You know, we start off with the flute and then you have uh, the flute kind of hitting this this high pitch that it kind of hovers around for a while and, and hits on it and, and hits on it repeatedly. And and then all of a sudden, you know, I thought, wait, is this for flute and electronics? What's going on here? What's what's that thing? Oh, that's the cello. Oh, my God. That's that was that was a really oh, cool. nice. Moment Thank for you me. so much. Yeah. I'm really proud of that one. I don't know how I stumbled upon it, but um, yeah, I really love the way that sounds. Uh, and I agree with you. It, it really does sound almost electronic, especially if you don't have the visual mm-hmm. of seeing the cellist there. Yeah. <laughs> um, you kind of, you were kind of talking about uh, the motivic connection to the carnotic exercise. Um, you also said in your notes that this is you're using a combination of two complementary pentatonic modes so how how does that work are you are you basically do you have 10 notes that you're working with or yeah actually are you, yeah so is in there this overlap? Case, i actually used it basically uh you could think of it as fixed register in a sense mm-hmm. um so uh, this so i'll just kind of i'll get nerdy here <laughs> we we love it yes right, awesome. <laughs> um so if i were to spell out the two different complementary ragas right so you've got c D flat, F, G, and B flat. Okay. Then the D flat gets raised. So C, D, F becomes F sharp, G, uh, and then B natural. Okay. C. And then what I did was I just kind of rotate that so it stays fixed every other octave, if that makes sense. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, So that's why I think of it as almost like a 10 note structure because it stays consistent across two octaves two octaves instead of every octave okay yeah yeah that 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 makes sense um and then so that means that within a given octave you really are focusing on this pentatonic or that pentatonic depending on where you are or if you're kind of you know moving in between them then you then you get this whole new uh collection of pitches that yeah that was pretty awesome (laughs) yeah it was definitely fun (laughs) i still do stuff like that because it's just there's so much you can draw from that kind of. Well, I've always liked like minor, major chromatic inflections. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And does uh, does improvisation come into play in this piece at all, or or um, is it is it in terms all of completely... the performers? Yes. Oh no, it's all written. 
all written. Mm -hmm. But I think in your notes you were mentioning, or maybe that was the other piece that you were mentioning something about improvisation. I think it was the other piece. Okay, I remember. (laughs) But actually, I mean, why I'm asking this is because I went, uh, I just, you know, Googled uh, Carnotic singing and I watched some videos and it just seemed like there is, in classical Indian music, there is quite a good deal of improvisation when it comes to that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I think they say something like, in Hindustani music, it's something like 95% of the music is improvised. Mm -hmm. Um, In Carnotic music, there is more of a compositional structure, but it's Mm -hmm. still a structure. And uh, before and after that structure, there's a lot of improvisation. And within the structure also, there's a lot of improvisation in terms of the variation and ornamentation that happens. Uh, In most of my music, not all, but for example, Dvirag, I decided to kind of give you the sense of improvisation, but it's all notated out because our, you know, Western musicians aren't versed in Indian music. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, I think it's kind of like jazz, my limited understanding of jazz, but it's similar in that Indian musicians have these formulas that they learn really, really, really well and it's second nature. And so they can use those really quickly to improvise. And, you know, the people I'm writing for don't have that. So now in other pieces, I have tried to give some very sort of limited constraints and then allow people to improvise within that. But Mm -hmm. I'm not aiming for a true Carnotic style improvisation. There I really am trying to get at, you know, bringing in the two different cultures together. Right. And as as someone who has learned and listened to music from those two different cultures, what are some of the tendencies that Western listeners have when they approach classical Indian music for the first time? Do, have you had any experiences? With yeah, that? yeah, yeah. Um, I think rhythm is tricky uh, because, you know, when you use a lot of sort of irregular groupings, you know, like sevens and nines and things like that, mm-hmm. and, and Indian musicians are used to just kind of putting that together very effortlessly, right. um, that I found is something that is usually a big learning curve for Western musicians. I mean, professional musicians, they can get it, but they still have to work on that um, and, and to for it to feel precise. Like, for example, I have a wind band piece, and it has a section that has like a 776 kind of groove and i've seen people then rehearse it and the seven almost always feels a little bit more like an eight do you know what i mean it's right like yeah that 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 it doesn't feel natural one two three four five six seven right, one two exactly. three yeah exactly <laughs> so they have to really work on making seven feel natural in and of itself right and not as like a you know uh oh it's a shorter eight or something like that so that's one example but um, the other thing I've, I think is intonation is, is has always been really tricky, right? Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, it's kind of tricky in contemporary Western music anyway when you don't have a tonal context. But when you're dealing with Indian music and you have ragas, you actually have a tonal center, right? Because it's modal. Right. But that doesn't necessarily mean it follows the same kinds of um, intonation, you know, uh, principles, if you want to say, as sort of Western music, um, Western mm-hmm. tonal music. So that's something I've had to work on, especially with string players um, who, who are constantly adjusting. Um, but really any any player has to do that. So yeah, those are some challenges. Is that just due to kind of the the natural tendencies of the mode you're in? You know, if, if, you're, if you have a half step, you might want to make it 
even closer than a half exactly. step or something like exactly. that. Exactly. And I think it's been a learning experience for me because I didn't think that I, I didn't really know how much that mattered until I would mm-hmm. hear Western musicians, especially the, I've, I'm thinking of a particular string example and feeling like, oh, that's not exactly what I had in mind, but they didn't really know how to make those modifications exactly like what's the tendency where is that half step should where should it be closer and so on um so i i try to give some more notes now but mm-hmm. yeah and then what about have you had any kind of meaningful feedback from from audiences in 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 that respect like you know they're and it, i'm not talking about audiences of your music but rather audiences of maybe they're they're listening to uh, classical Indian music for the first time and and what what that is experience is like because I'm just wondering like sure. if you have this are you then is, does that enter into your compositional process as you as you are combining and blending the two worlds together yeah um I I think what you're asking me if I just uh, let me clarify what you're asking me so you're mm-hmm. saying audiences in general when they hear Indian music what kind of how does yeah, that experience of, or what is yeah. that feedback I've gotten with that experience and how right. does that how do I bring that into composing and how yeah, I bring yeah this, basically yeah. if if you know what your audience is is if you know how they experience that music for the first time and you know what their expectations are then you can use that to your advantage in a way I don't know that I've thought about it all that deeply. Um, mm-hmm. I do know that, you know, I my teacher in college used to listen to Indian music and he would talk to me about it and he'd say, you know, I just don't really understand how to follow it. Like, it, I think he mm-hmm. found it formally very difficult. Um, and I actually remembered giving some, I mean, as an undergraduate, kind of giving him some tutorials from what I knew um, about what to I bet he loved for. that. Yeah, he did, actually. It was really pretty fun. We actually did a demonstration in class. Um, but I don't, I don't know if I've really thought about it very closely in my music. I mean, I, I, get, I guess what I, one thing I would say with my music, which I found is very different from other cross-cultural composers, so there's so many different... Mm-hmm ways of going about this is I really am probably more on the Western mm-hmm. music side, contemporary Western. So, you know, like more dissonances kind of even formally, I'm really thinking right. about things that way. And I think that helps me connect with Western based audiences because they hear those Indian elements as like exotic or foreign or, or, you know, like that's another cultural sound, but it's within a framework that they mostly can follow. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, tr- it does affect how I pick my material because I will choose material like, you know, we, there isn't, there are many ragas that are basically major scales that, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. if you, and I don't choose those cause I won't get the, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's not satisfying for me and I just, right. I, it'll, especially on Western instruments. It's one thing to hear that on Indian instruments where they have the like glides and, you know, if you hear a vocal singer singing something that's like major scale, it doesn't really sound like major scale. Mm-hmm. But if for me to compose that for Western instruments, it sort of, there's, there's nothing exciting about it for me. So I choose the materials carefully because of that. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's listen to this piece. So here, who are we going to hear on this recording? Uh, this is Tara Voce. 
They are based in uh, Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, And they were the lead commissioners for the project. All right, so this is Dvirag.
Uh, let's move on to your piece, Kirthanata. Kirthanata, yes. Uh, let me do that again. <laughs> I, I, I think uh, by by telling you the story about you know pronouncing all the Indian names for from Aviman Kaushal, I got you know jinxed yourself. Re- yeah, totally got jinxed. Got a got a big head, and now now I'm going to screw everything up. So there, that is. Anyway, if it makes you feel any better, I made up these words, so you know. So that's it. That's that's the problem I'm having. Right. <laughs> so, uh, Kirthanata, uh, since you made it up, what does it mean? Well, it's supposed to be a, you know, clever twist on words, I suppose. Um, mm-hmm. So it was the first piece that I decided to investigate an Indian form. You asked me in the last uh, segment about what you know by formal design and this one actually is something that is it draws its influence from an Indian formal structure and it, okay. the structure is called kirtanam and it's a very popular uh, concert piece actually you hear it all the time in concerts and I remember studying many many kirtanams it's sort of like the heart of um, you know formal structures in Carnatic music and so that kind of reminded me of the other formal structure that's the heart of Western music which is the sonata Mm-hmm. It has this piece has nothing to do with a sonata form. I was using sonata more in terms of the sort of more general instrumental right. work kind of yeah. Uh, yeah. sense, and so I just kind of combined the two. Yeah, there are a couple instruments up on stage. Oh, it must be a sonata. Exactly. You know? Oh, there's a whole orchestra up there. It must be a symphony. You know that that kind of thing. So how does what what is the kind of uh, formal structure that that plays out? It seems like it it has something to kind of do with maybe theme and variations in a way. It's very similar to that. Yeah, uh, there's an introduction, so you just kind of ignore that for a moment in terms of the formal design, and then after mm-hmm. the initial introduction, you hear very clearly a theme that is stated um, in the saxophone parts, and yes, that goes through some variations, and it's it's like a refrain really. Um, mm-hmm. It actually would would normally have text, and incidentally, when I composed it, I came up with some Sanskrit texts for myself, even though it's never mm-hmm. ever going to be, you know, sung with it. But just to give it that sense of you know um, motion or whatever, so uh, that gets repeated and then varied, and then variation repeats, and then there's variation two, and then that repeats, and so on, and. Most kirtanams might have like four or five repetitions with variations. This one that I was listening to and I was using it as a model for this piece had six, which is a lot um, mm-hmm. and was kind of neat. So, and the way it builds is, is very much a part of the form too. So it's simply stated and the ornamentations get wilder and wilder. Um, and then it breaks pretty suddenly and it's almost like a B section to the refrain is stated simply. And then that goes through some variations, though not as many as the first. And mm-hmm. that is really the first part of a kirtanam. Um, okay. It's called a pallavi and that's what I used for this piece. And in these variations, you're kind of treating the two, the two saxophones, the soprano sax and the alto sax, heterophonically right yes exactly 
and, and does is that relating back to classical Indian music? Absolutely, yeah, it yeah. is. Okay. I mean, and that's very typical in Kirtanam. Uh, when you have a Carnatic music concert, you usually will have a soloist, which might be a vo- vocalist or an instrumentalist, mm-hmm. and then you'll have a supporting um, instrumentalist, maybe a violin, usually okay. a violin. And those two, so imagine a typical version is voice, singer, and violinist. And the violinist will always be just slightly behind the singer mm-hmm. and will just kind of mimic them, but not exactly. And that gives you that heterophonic effect. So yeah, I was listening uh, to several different kirtanams and kind of getting the feel of that and trying that since I had a duo model here. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's always a texture that I just personally i like to go to musically just because i think it is so interesting and you know it's it's maybe for me it kind of relates to electronic music by you know having just kind of micro delays and and, sure. and things yeah. like that, that you know it's a, it's and and i think it all, it also connects with me in terms of uh just the kind of visual art that i like you know seeing two lines that are almost the same but you know some one splits off at a at a certain moment and then rejoins it's just yeah. it's I, for for me it's it's a great musical idea so i really kind of connected with that um so this piece is for uh two saxophones and then fixed media so what kinds of sound sources were you using for the fixed media part and you know how are you processing and what yeah there's a lot going on there um there is a drone collection of drones that i created by singing actually myself oh (laughs) you can't wow i did yeah okay you're not supposed to be able to tell (laughs) okay (laughs) um i just wanted like straight tone and you know yeah just so there's Mm -hmm. that um, there's a whole electronic percussion kind of thing going on, and a lot of that is actually from saxophone samples. So slap tongues and key mm-hmm. clicks, and I just had the saxophones, you know, come into the studio and record a bunch of percussive stuff. Um, let's see what else. I, I I'm very eclectic in my sound material. I'm not of the camp of like everything has to come from one source, uh, which I, right. I totally value when other people do that, but I tend not to. So I mean, I've drawn from other samples from my sample bank mm-hmm. uh, and just kind of morphed it as, as sound material. Do you is there? You said you were taking samples from the saxophones, but is there also a part? for the alto sax where they are doing kind of a, a slap tongue thing yeah. live as well yeah that i mean that part it really reminds me of sounds from hand drums especially because it is so on the alto sax and and even the soprano sax just that the the higher quality of a slap tongue on those instruments it gives you that kind of dry um yeah, just very dry sound that you would get from small hand drums, as opposed to something like, you know, getting a slap tongue from a berry sax, which is like big and resonant and everything. It's just, I love these, the the kind of clickiness yeah, of Yeah, and I, I think the thing that reminds me of hand drum too is that there's sometimes, there's often a tone, there's, and, and which is something I exploit in the electronics. So there's some percussive elements that are from recordings of slap tongue where the tone is kind of enhanced so you kind of get that a little bit more um and i think i think that helps to give that feeling of a hand drum too right in a certain way i want to go back to the to the opening section 
Gotcha. Because in a certain way, I think that teaches us, the listener, it teaches us the mode and the pitch language that we're going to hear, right? Yeah. It actually kind of reminds me of uh, African uh, Jill music, which um, it's a it's a 14-note um, pentatonic xylophone, basically. And and many, uh, many pieces for Jill start with the player just kind of improvising on the instrument and and if i'm remembering this correctly i think it's to kind of wake up the instrument in a certain way but it it also it also teaches us what we're going to hear because and and i'm and i was just thinking about that like why don't we do that in you know in western classical music because at this point in history a hundred percent of our listeners are hearing the piece for the first time right you know i think that's a pretty good, sta- you know, pretty factual statement. Maybe, you know, let, okay, 95%, 99%. But they are thus becoming acquainted with you and your language for the first time. And I think we move so quickly from area to area that the listener is just kind of hanging on for dear life. So in a way, I, I think this kind of like just, okay, let's get the sound. You know, teach teach us what to listen for kind of thing was very effective. Oh, I'm glad to hear you say that. Um, that's actually also drawn from Indian music because if you're, you know, people who are listening to Indian music might be aware of the alap section um, of, mm. of most pieces. And that's very much the purpose of an alap. Actually, they say it's actually for the, you know, instrumentalists or vocalists to warm themselves up, but it's also for setting the audience in a certain mood. And so that does establish the rag, and then they go into the song where they, you know, improvise. So alap is also improvised. Um, and mm-hmm. so it's sort of, it's not, it's not alap-like, but it has that same function formally. Um, right. And yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure I played with starting it right away, and it just doesn't, didn't seem to make any sense because... I don't know. I just I wanted to be in that world a little bit before sort of starting the theme right. variations. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I'm glad to hear that worked. <laughs> yeah, I think it did. Um, and then can you talk about, you know, in your notes, you kind of said that a lot of your pieces are very, tend to be very serious and <laughs> and the Indian classical music also tends to be very emotional and serious. But in this one, you were you wanted to kind of lighten the mood. So... How how what what was your thinking in doing that? Yeah, you know, it wasn't it wasn't um, an intention at, at the outset of composing the piece, but it sort of came out because when you watch dueling musicians in Indian music, mm. uh, and I think this is true with probably any culture when you have you know musicians dueling or playing with each other, there's a lot of interplay. There's drama. There's theater. You know, it's not just music. They they are really working together. Um, teasing each other sometimes, you know, yeah. all musically. And I think I love that stuff. I think it's so neat. And you really mm-hmm. see it with Indian musicians. Um, I mean, any see any concert with Ravi Shankar and like a thublist, right? I mean, any 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 sitarist or a thublist, for example, would they they do that. And, and especially as it get faster and faster and, you know, they kind of are like, hey, you know, like there's that one one up and shit. Come on, catch up. Exactly. Like, yeah. I can do this. Can you do this kind of thing? And um, I, it just seemed appropriate when you've got you know two two instrumentalists who are going to be equal. It's a duet, so they're really equal roles. Um, and with this particular heterophonic, you know, Indian um, 
influenced piece it that's that's really what came out in fact when i rehearsed this piece with people i that's almost one of my first and major comments is okay you've got the music in your fingers now you right. have to like look at each other because you know <laughs> western musicians are buried in the scores yeah even really professional players um will just be buried and usually they say oh thank you for telling us that, you know, like sort of gives them permission and, and then they, they mm-hmm. get into it. And it's, I think it's more engaging performance that way. So I guess what I'm saying is that, that Indian music also has that lightness and um, fun interplay. Yeah. And I want to bring that in. Awesome. So let's listen to it now. Who are we going to hear on this recording? This is Sarah Kind on the soprano saxophone and Jesse Docknell on the alto saxophone, and they're the ones who commissioned the piece. They were colleagues of mine at Lawrence University. So this is Kirthanata. Thank you. 
let's talk about the last piece. This is for a chamber ensemble, and this is Farlila. And this was commissioned and recorded by Alarm Will Sound. And the the title, like your other titles, is is a title you composed. So what does this title mean? Um, well, Svara is like uh, is notes, basically like pitches. And um, Lila is often translated as play loosely. Um, mm-hmm. Lila is used in many different contexts, but uh, so I think that that seems appropriate. <laughs> play, yeah, play like the notes. Playing, the, playing with notes. <laughs> well, it's more like from a composer's perspective, you know, like playing around. Like Lila can be. Uh, Lila is actually often referred to Krishna, who's one of the main deities, um, mm-hmm. who is often portrayed as a as a child, and. Okay. Uh, there's a sense of like cosmic play and child's play kind of all rolled into one. So yeah, it's sort of more complex, but that's kind of what I was doing with it. And uh, in contrast to the first piece we heard where you had two pentatonic collections that were fixed register, you kind of one on top of each other, repeating two octaves apart. In this one, you talked about kind of a conflation of two two uh, modes or ragas that gives you an eight note collection is so is that repeating at the octave or no it's not uh, it's more oh, okay. sort of freer with this one this one was really um, harmonically driven for me I actually composed mm. it very chordally as you could probably basically hear for the first four minutes or so um, it's mm. like slowly unraveling and so. I, I wasn't thinking as melodically necessarily. I think that is probably where this camp comes from. So um, it's a conflation in that the C and C sharp can happen simultaneously. It's, mm-hmm. it's based on A. Um, and it's kind of like a sort of a modified Phrygian kind of thing. But okay. with the C, C sharp possibilities. And I, I don't remember that I... I don't think I had as specific sort of rules or... Um, you know, uh, yeah, for w- when I would use what, but I allowed myself to use either of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so interesting that you say that you compose this harmonically because when I was listening to it, I was so invested in kind of following all the, all the separate lines that are oh. kind of going on that I would have thought, I mean... I would have thought you would have done this, you know, almost completely melodically. That's so with... interesting. Yeah, if you yeah. looked at my short score, which I'm sure I have somewhere, it's all chords, actually. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I was working so... in a, at the piano. and But what I was doing was the top line. You know, I was thinking, uh, West, you know, just kind of like what we do, right? The top line mm-hmm. is sort of the main melodic line. So that had right. to have um, a larger structure. Um, and then a lot of the other stuff is surface level detail, actually. Right. Yeah. yeah. So that uh, that top line that kind of guides us through the rest of the piece in certain ways, or does that get compressed? Or uh, yes, it elongated? does get compressed. I, I think of that as really driving the piece. It's it, it's mm-hmm. meant to be very goal oriented. So it starts really mm-hmm. low and it's going to get really high and it's very methodically structured out. Um, I was working with the concept of extended melody with this one mm-hmm. um, and really thinking about my structural points uh, that way. And so 
it's almost like the form is really derived from this long line because once you get to the climactic point that's when the rhythmic stuff really starts to happen in the right. piano and marimba and it's almost like the piece is kind of fulfilled do you know what I mean fulfilled its goal and then it sort of yeah. needs to unravel and fizzle out and that sort of thing yeah. mm-hmm. have you have you always kind of worked in scales or modes I mean what 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 are you know in your maybe earlier pieces or something? What what are the other things that you've explored? So basically, like, yeah. how did you how did you get to this place where this is the primary way that you work? Well, I've been doing this for a long time, so it's been it's <laughs> you know uh, it has become the primary way I work. Um, but in t- two thousand three, I wrote a flute and electronics piece. You might have even heard that. I don't know, but it's been performed quite often. Uh, uh-huh. and it's, it's the earliest piece I have that's still performed and it is modal. It's very modal, but I wasn't thinking about it as a raga. I was not actually thinking about it as Indian music at all. Uh-huh. Um, but other people told me, actually Andrew, my husband at the time, not my <laughs> husband, um, but he, he was like, well, it really sounds like Indian music or, you know, he was kind of pointing out the connections and uh-huh. that were very much not on the surface level for me or not conscious. Um, so I guess in a way to answer your question, I've probably always been doing it, just necess- not necessarily consciously. Um, one time I wrote this piece for voice, which is not Indian at all. Uh, it doesn't sound Indian. It's not supposed mm-hmm. to. It wouldn't make sense because of the text. But it's if you I really did write it with a modal you know some modal it's actually 12 tone but it's not 12 tone serialism it's just I use 12 nodes but right. they are segmented according to what would be a modal collection so I just find it mm-hmm. easier for me to think that way and I think I'm inspired by that but mm-hmm. I can work with making that more overt or more subtle um, as I need to for the context of the piece right yeah I mean, I th- for the last oh I don't know three or four years I've been I've been doing a quite a lot with um, kind of uh, invented scales so very much like your um, your first piece where it's all fixed register but you know actually it's it's pretty much the same thing um, but uh, it was it was kind of coming from this place where. I personally, I needed some restriction, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, that's what a scale or a mode or, or whatever does for you. And it, and for often sure. I think it's more freeing than it is hampering. So I was, yeah. I was wondering if that was similar to you. Oh, that's such a good point. It is a good point. It, I, it is similar in that, um, you know, I am a very pitch oriented person, like musically, mm-hmm. I've realized after all these years of teaching and listening to music, that not everybody uh, goes that way, and I remember talking to a, a friend who's a composer who's like, "Yeah, pitch is the last thing I do, and I just kind of pick some <laughs> pitches, and I just don't work that way." And I think that's fine. Um, and but because of that, I mean, I'm always uh, very conscious of that. So even people, even students who maybe for the whom pitch is not centric, I always say, "Well, how are you coming up with your pitches?" Because right, yeah. I mean, you have to have pitches unless you're dealing with the you know percussion, unpitched percussion or something. Yeah. you have to deal with pitch, and so that those connections are going to be there and pitch is such a strong, it creates such a strong hierarchy for our listening. Um, 
And so, I, you know, I, I feel like there's a lot of music in major. I'm not that inspired by it. There's a lot of music in minor. Not that inspired by it. So mm-hmm. modes are seem like where it's at, you know? Yeah. Uh, and that's, I think, where it moved from conscious or subconscious to conscious for me. Because I think I was always mm-hmm. interested in modes because it was just better sounding for me. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah. you know, but then it... Indian music and that history kind of allowed me to structure that and dive into that more deeply because of course there's such a rich heritage with Mm -hmm. modes and scales um, with with Indian Indian music so I'm really grateful and and that's probably why I've been doing it for as many years because I can keep finding things that I can go to yeah it's funny that you bring up the the person that you know was like oh pitch is the last thing you know I, oh, I'm just going to choose something because I used to be that person. Interesting. Like, a- absolutely. I used to be that person. And I, I got to the point where it was like, you know, at first it was kind of a a um, a badge of pride. Like, oh, p- pitch doesn't matter. I mean, it's all these other things that matter. And then I got to a point and I was like, wait, this doesn't make any sense. Pitch is like one of the primary aspects of sound. How can I be ignoring it? And that's kind of when I got to this place where it was like, I... I, I don't know what I'm doing with pitch anymore. You know, I need something because just the complete abstract 12 tone space is, it, I mean, it's, it's like the daunting. blank. Yeah, it, it is. It's, it's, it's like the blank sheet of paper, you know, right. Oh, you can do anything with this. Right. Oh, you mean I could, I, I can do anything that me. Oh boy. You know, so well, and if you think about, you know, when we think about Schoenberg with the 12 tone, he created a system because otherwise it does feel yeah. arbitrary and I remember a student recently writing a piece and she was working with sets of her own volition um, you know and <laughs> and she was she was not happy with the material she was coming up with and she said just seems arbitrary I feel like I could just kind of pick anything what why mm-hmm. do I you know do this or the other so yeah I think there whatever ways composers can find to create constraints is just going to help them so much with creativity right yeah um in your notes, you kind of talked about how different ragas have different emotional qualities. And I kind of feel like Western, you know, Western modes or scales are just generic enough to be labeled simply as happy and sad or something like that, you know, and then the composer can modify that based on the choices they make. But are you, are you kind of saying that ragas have a more specific emotional quality yeah, actually, there's a whole, um, yeah, that's just a whole topic. I don't, actually don't know the specifics, but you could look up, like, brave ragas and mm. you know, um, fiery, angry ragas. And, you know, like, so there's a lot of nuance in the types of emotions mm-hmm. that ragas are supposed to depict. Um, and that's very much a part of, especially in North Indian music, and you probably are aware that, Certain ragas are played at certain times of day and things like that. It's all all related, um, actually. Mm-hmm. But uh, I also think that you know if you don't know that theory or you don't know the specifics of what ragas are supposed to elicit what emotion, just from my own personal experience, having heard Indian music throughout my life, I have built you know a certain sense of 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 an emotional vocabulary I guess you could say mm-hmm. you know certain pieces and it probably is I mean I haven't really investigated but I bet a lot of it has to do too with you know what 
m- like movies might use certain ragas uh, mm-hmm. for certain scenes and things like that. So it could be even that literal that that has been embedded in me. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, it's, so it's really a color palette then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and I, uh, this piece is an interesting one from that perspective because I had a very distinct um, kind of, uh, and I think I talked about the, it has this, um, I mean, sad is just like really one dimensional, but you know, like a yeah. depth of angst or I don't know what you would call it, but yeah. depression, not, not depression, it's not right either. But anyway, um, but you know, Andrew, my husband who listened to it a lot, he didn't get that at all, you know. Right. And so we had this really interesting conversation, composer to composer. He's also a composer mm-hmm. um, about about this because you know I'm trying to I'm I'm inspired by this emotional quality and I'm writing that, but it's not going to get communicated. Like it's likely not going to get communicated in the way that I'm intending. Um, right. You know, and so there's always that question, of course, composers have all the time of whether what they intend gets through, it doesn't matter, and, you know, who cares, whatever, but, um, yeah, I don't know. But for you, but for you, that's important. For you, that's why you made the choice you did. I was going to say, it's important to me, so I'm not going to worry about what it's like to other people, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and and I think that's valid, you know, if, if, if that is the thing that made you put the notes on the page... Then it worked. Well, exactly. You know? And I, I, I thank you for saying that. And I, I've said this to my students and I feel this more and more that, yeah, it, it has to inspire you and, and that makes you create. Like, so the way this melody unravels is, is meant to be, you know, this like dolorous kind of massive, weighty, almost melodramatic uh mm-hmm you know, unraveling. And that's because of the nature of that raga for me. So I agree with you. I, I think that if, if it works, go for it. <laughs> yeah. So let's listen to it. And are we going to hear alarm will sound? Yes, that's right. So this is Farlila. Thank you. 
we have come to the end. So I always have one more one more question for all the composers and artists that I interview is that uh, how did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life? Well, there are always many elements to that question, I yeah. bet, to unwrap. Um, I was always doing music. My mother is a singer. Um, my grandmother was a singer and my mother still performs, actually. She's pretty active. Uh, and... So I think I was always in music, but when did that mm-hmm. become something I wanted to pursue? Uh, it was really in college, probably. I um, I was able to exempt some of those introductory courses. And so I took some 300-level <laughs> courses in my freshman year. And nice. I think that's probably what did it. Because, you know, you just are so much more engaged at that 300, you know what I mean, that sort of like yeah. upper-level class and the teacher so encouraging and it came easily to me and I enjoyed it um, that I decided that that was what I was going to to try for and that that was composing actually at that point too so yeah I guess I will blame it on my college teacher (laughs) (laughs) was there was there kind of a specific thing you were studying in music or what was it a specific piece that you heard or something like that no, I, I don't think so. I actually think it's the puzzle of composing. Um, mm-hmm. I've actually thought, given this a lot of thought because I had to write, you know, tenure statements and stuff like that. Yep. Um, <laughs> and my brother, this seems, seems tangential, but my brother is a computer programmer and we talked, he's, he's younger than me, but we talked about how we kind of both approached the idea of puzzles because we both love puzzles in totally different ways. And, pers- mm-hmm. you know, I went through music and composing and he went uh, to something that's more lucrative and in demand. <laughs> you know, computer, computer programming. But, uh, but for me, I, I think a lot of it is the puzzle. It's like, the, like oh, I want to do this thing. How do I do it? Or how can I mm-hmm. work this out and like, unraveling it? And that I just really have always enjoyed. That's and I awesome. still do. <laughs> So, uh, before we go, where can people find you on online and connect with you? Uh, well, my website would be a good place to go, twocomposers.org. Um, and I have much of my music on SoundCloud and on YouTube. But if you want to contact me, on my website. Awesome. Are you on Twitter, by the way? I don't do Twitter. I'm, I'm a, I have a Facebook account, so I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a low social media person. (laughs) Got it. Got it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this, Asha. Thank you. This was fun. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.